everybody. This is Steve Ray of NIST, and uh, welcome to the uh, Thursday, January 11th session of the Ontolog Forum. We are going to have the third uh, speaker in the session on ontology measurement and evaluation series of talks, and that speaker is Professor Werner Kusters of the uh, University of Buffalo. Uh, what, what's happened so far in this series is that um, we had Chris Welty talking about essentially the in, intrinsic evaluation of an ontology uh, sort of from a, if you like, a structural perspective of does it even hang together itself. And uh, Barry Smith was talking about some of the more uh, philosophical logic issues uh, underlying uh, ontologies. And uh, Werner's talk is now going to address some of the issues of the alignment, if you like, of the ontology with what's really out there. Uh, and, and in other words, how well is aligned the representation of what's out there with what is out there and with what you believe is out there. I don't want to steal all Werner's thunder, however. I did find his uh, slides upon a quick scan to be fascinating insights on this. I also noticed on Werner's first slide that he's actually an MD, which I also didn't realize. So obviously, uh, highly educated fellow, and uh, I think is going to give us a good good show here. So. With that, Werner, I will pass the baton to you. Okay. Thanks, Steve. You were too kind in your introduction. My talk will be about realism-based change management for quality assurance in ontologies and data repositories. Uh, next slide, please. I divided this uh, presentation in four parts. The, the first part uh, will be to uh, repeat for you or for those who are new to realist ontology uh, what it is for an ontology to endorse a realist view. In the second part, I will then uh, deal with the issue of how these sorts of ontologies can cope with changes. I will then proceed in explaining how changes which occur in reality can be tracked by means of ontologies and repositories. And then finally, I will propose a calculus for quality assurance of updates of both ontologies and data repositories. So on slide four, um, there is that bias that, in, in my view, is uh, too much widespread, and that's namely the, the view that an ontology is an explicit specification of the conceptualization of a domain, which is a definition that we got from Gruber. And quite often also, uh, there is that additional notion of agreement attached to it. Slide five. Now, this view on ontology, in my mind, has certain sad consequences. Uh, one is that too much effort goes into the specification business. So there's a lot of research done about OWL, DL reasoners, translators and converters, syntax checkers, and so on. But at the other hand, there is too little effort into the faithfulness of the conceptualizations towards what they represent. Um, one of the things that you quite often hear is that when you build an ontology using description logic and you use a description logic reasoner, then uh, because of the computational uh, characteristics of these kind of reasoners, you get consistent reasoning. Well, that's of course only true uh, as far as the internal consistent reasoning uh, goes. But it doesn't tell you anything whether the model that you implemented uh, into DL is consistent uh, with reality. And one specific example is 
that there is what I call the pseudo-separation of language and entities. So it is perfectly acceptable that you, uh, uh, from a computer science point of view, that you enter a concept such as absent nipple into an ontology, while in reality there is no such thing as an absent nipple. What I'm going to talk about today is exactly on how you can avoid these kinds of uh, problems. Because, as my previous research and research of Barry has pointed out, many ontologies and several systems that are qualified as being ontology-like exhibit mistakes of various sorts because of ignorance of that problem. Slide 6. So the, the remedy, in our view, is to have a realist view of the world. And that means uh, that we have to accept that the world consists in the first place of entities that are either particulars or universals. Uh, an example of a particular would be me. An example of universal would be person. Um, there are occurrence and continuance, whereas occurrence are things such as processes that evolve over time. And continuance are entities that, when they are present, they are present in total. But they can undergo changes. And the third distinction, uh, important distinction, is between dependent and independent entities, where dependent entities are such that their existence depends on the existence of an independent entity. Example there being uh, the shape of my body cannot be there when my body is not there. Now, the second division is that of relationships, and there are relationships between these entities uh, in such a way that there are either particular universal relationships, such as A is an instance of B, I am an instance of person, um, relationships between particulars. Uh, for instance, uh, I am a member of the persons currently inside the Center of Excellence in Bioinformatics in Buffalo, and relationships from universals to universals, most typical example being the is uh, or the is subtype of relationship. Slide 7. Now, there are three levels of reality. The first level is that the world exists as it is prior to a cognitive agent's perception thereof. Tables do not exist because we see them. We can see them because they exist. So, reality exists before any observation. I'm now on slide 8. And on slide 9, it is shown that also most structures in reality are there in advance before there is any cognitive agent that passes by and that perceives it. On slide 10 is shown the second level of reality. It's namely that cognitive agents build up in their minds cognitive representations of the world. On slide 11 you see an example where the author of an ontology acknowledges the existence of some portion of reality. You see in the green field that structure that pre-exists, and you see on the top of the slide and the blue diamond two entities that the author acknowledges to exist. But on slide 12, you see that there are some portions of reality that escape his attention. So these things are still there, but they are not perceived 
uh, by the author, they are not inside his conceptual representation of the world. On slide 13, then, we've got the third level, which is that to make these representations publicly accessible in some enduring fashion, the authors of an ontology have to create representational artifacts that are fixed in some medium. And an ontology, as such, is one of such representational artifacts. So on slide 14, you'll see an additional element added on the left-hand side, where you see again a light blue uh, diamond. In this case, there is only one uh, uh, white rectangle uh, shown. Uh, this is because, although the ontology author, in his conceptual representation of the world, is aware of two entities, he considers only one of these entities to be relevant for inclusion in an ontology. Now, it is important to understand, slide 15, that these concretizations are not supposed to be the representations of these cognitive representations. They are still supposed to be uh, representations of that what is out there in reality. So on slide 15, it is clearly shown that we should not be in the business of concept representation. We should be in the business of reality representation. Slide 16. There's, they are representations of the corresponding parts of reality. And I could say they are like the images taken by means of a high-quality camera. And as you can see on slide 17, they should not be like the paintings of Salvador Dali. So it's, of course, very nice paintings. They represent a certain view of Dali on reality, but it is not a representation of reality. It's a representation of the view of Dali on reality. And that's not what, at least, I am doing when I'm doing ontology. Slide 18 shows you a couple of uh, examples of representational artifacts. Um, and I divided them in four categories. So there are those artifacts which are primarily about particulars, and there are those artifacts which are primarily about universals or defined classes. And on the other hand, you have non-formalized and formalized representational uh, artifacts uh, of the sort, which is non-formalized and primarily about particulars. You have progress notes, discharge letters, medical summaries, uh, maps of cities, for instance. Formalized sort, you have inventories, reference tracking database, and so forth. Non-formalized representational artifacts about universals are textbooks, scientific theories. And then finally, the most interesting part for these kind of sessions are the formalized ones about universals and divine classes, and that are the genuine ontologies and also some so, uh, sorts of terminologies. Now, each of these representational artifacts should ideally be built out of representational units and relationships that mirror the entities and their relationships in reality. Slide 19 shows you some characteristics of representational units. So a first characteristic is that each unit is assumed by the creators of the representation to be veridical. Uh, this means that it is to conform to some relevant portion of reality as conceived on the best current scientific understanding. Slide 20. 
Um, several units may correspond to the same portion or, of reality by presenting different, though still veridical views or perspectives. So adopting a realist view on reality does not mean that you have to stick to one specific view. Different views are still allowed, but all of these views must be veridical. And the third characteristic is that what is to be represented by the units in a representation depends on the purposes which the representation is designed to serve. I showed that already on one of the previous slides, so it is not because you are aware of everything that exists in reality that there is a need to have a complete representation of reality in a specific ontology. It all depends on the purposes which that ontology is designed to serve. Slide 22 shows you some further characteristics of what I would call an optimal ontology. So each representational unit in an optimal ontology would designate first a single portion of reality, which is thus relevant to the purposes of the ontology, and such that the authors of the ontology intended to use this unit to designate this portion of reality, and there would be no portions of realities objectively relevant to these purposes that are not referred to in the ontology. So the last criterion means that, although it is perfectly acceptable that not everything that is there is represented in an ontology, everything that is relevant should be there. And bear these characteristics in mind when, near the end of my presentation, I will uh, propose some calculus to assess how good an ontology is with respect to that, what it intends to describe. Now, of course, when there are optimal things, uh, you can imagine that it's very easy that things go wrong. And there are different kinds of errors that can be made by ontology developers. So the first sort of error is assertion errors. Uh, ontology developers may be an error as to what is the case in their target domain. So on slide 24, you see an example of an assertion error, namely the fact that a number of things uh, which are in reality, and which in this case, I suppose, are to be relevant, are not uh, represented in the cognitive representation, and even a minority of things, so one of the two of them, is put in the ontology itself. On slide 25, we have then a second type of error, which is a relevance error, that is, ontology authors may be in error as to what is objectively relevant to a given purpose. On slide 26, imagine, for instance, that the uh, white uh, square in the uh, cognitive representation of the author is relevant for the purposes of the ontology, but you see that uh, a reference to that entity is missing in the ontology itself. So in this case, we have a relevancy error. And then on slide 27, the last type of error is an encoding error. Uh, it might be that the ontology authors are perfectly aware of what is the case, and that their cognitive representation is valid, and that they are perfectly aware of, uh, of what is relevant and what is not relevant for inclusion. But at the time when they are uh, implementing the ontology, um, typing it into an ontology authoring system or doing whatever, it may be that they make a mistake such that the representational unit that they built failed to point to the intended portion of reality. So if we look at slide 28, 
there you see that there is a new um, diamond added on the left-hand side of the slide. So that uh, represents an entity which is taken in the ontology, but it doesn't refer to anything uh, in reality. Another example might be, it is not shown on this slide, but it might also be that you add uh, an entity in an ontology, you make an encoding mistake, and then uh, instead of referring to nothing at all, it refers to something that does exist, but that was not supposed to be referred to by that entity in the ontology. And we'll come to that later as well. Now, on slide 29, you see a couple of examples on how these uh, theoretical things relate to that what in uh, healthcare is known as medical findings and observations. Uh, for instance, a particular pathological entity may at a certain time be undetectable by any observation method or technique available to an observer, and including the person exhibiting the pathological entity itself. So in this case, something is going on in reality, but nobody is aware of it. Uh, another example would be a particular observation may produce false results and dissimulate the existence of a pathological entity. So this is the case that the physician might believe that there is something wrong with the patient, while in reality nothing is wrong. Or an observer, I'm on slide 31 now, an observer may observe or fail to observe a detectable particular pathological uh, entity. That happens quite a lot in the beginning of disorders, where you just have initial symptoms of diseases, uh, where you know there is already something wrong, but you fail to detect what exactly. Uh, on slide 32, we continue these examples. So suppose that an observer perceives a particular pathological entity, then he might judge it to be an instance of the universal of which it is indeed an instance in reality but he might also judge it to be an instance of another universal. So in this case, he is mistaken. He sees something that is in reality there, but he thinks it belongs to another class than what it in reality is. Or it might also be third possibility that he might not be able at all to make an association with any uh, universal. For instance, we see that happening when uh, diseases that have been unknown this far starts to uh, pop out and are puzzles for uh, medical science for a number of years. Um, another example might be that distinct manifestations of the same type may be pathological or not. Uh, there is nothing wrong with singing naked under the shower, but there is a lot wrong with singing naked in front of the White House. So this brings me then to uh, part two of my presentation, which is coping with changes. So on slide 34, uh, I gave a very simple um, view on reality. So you have, what you see here is uh, two universals, U1 and U2, and one particular called P3. And you see that that a time which is not mentioned, but uh, take the red arrow on the left-hand side, so that at that time, P3 is an instance of U1, and at a later time, the smaller red arrow uh, in the middle of the screen represents that at that time, P3 became an instance of U2. On slide 35, <coughs> you see then that the level of belief uh, is... Um, 
represented as well, and there is a difference between that, what is believed, and that, uh, what is reality. So what we have here are three uh, representational units which are uh, in yellow, and which represent representational units which are supposed to correspond with universals at the level of reality. And we see another uh, blue box which is labeled UI uh, number three, which uh, is supposed to be a representational unit that refers to the particular uh, P3 uh, in reality. Now, there is also a timeline there, and what I want to demonstrate in the forthcoming slides is how our perception of reality, as it is depicted there in that slide, changes over time, while at the same time also reality uh, is changing. So, on slide 36, you see, you see an overview of the different, uh, uh, let's say, boundaries that are there in changes that happen in reality as compared to changes that happen in the perception of reality. Slide 36 shows you the beginning of everything. So at that point in time, there is in reality only one universal, universal U1, but our, let's say in this case, our ontology author isn't aware of it. At this stage, there is total ignorance. Now, this is, for instance, uh, uh, an example of this would be that a disease already exists, but we have no clue at all about its existence. On slide 37, we move up in time, and uh, in the belief system, there is a representational unit, namely O uh, number zero, which in fact is a false belief. So there is a representational unit in our representation, but it doesn't correspond to anything in reality. So a typical example is here that notion of unicorn as a one-horned mammal, or that middle, uh, that disease which in the Middle Ages was called diabolic possession. So these things, they do not correspond with anything in reality. Now here I gave the example only for a universal, but it happens also for uh, particulars. Uh, remember several years ago that there was a scientist who uh, believed in the existence of the planet Vulcan, and his belief was based upon calculations uh, that he made. On slide 38, we advance further, uh, and in reality, Universal U2 uh, started to exist. Uh, but still, that coming into existence remains unnoticed. Example, AIDS started to exist pretty recently in, hi in history. Uh, physicians believe that it started to exist maximally 50, 75 years ago, uh, which means, for instance, that if there were already ontology builders 100 years ago, then AIDS, a representational unit for AIDS, should not be in that ontology. But now, it should uh, be the case. What I show here on slide 38 is that something new comes into existence, but nothing is updated in the ontology, so there is a kind of a mistake uh, which happens. Slide 39, we go further in time, um, and there is the coming into existence of the particular P3. So in reality, P3 starts to exist, and from its 
exception P3 is an instance of universal one. Uh, but uh, look at the belief level. Uh, its existence is still unnoticed. With what does that correspond? Uh, for instance, in reality, well, a specific patient might have a colonic polyp, uh, which from that time on is an instance of, say, a B9 polyp. But not the person, not the patient himself, not any physician is aware of the existence of that polyp in his intestine. Slide 40. Uh, this we can characterize as an advance in science. So although universal U1 already existed for a very long time, it is only now that the existence becomes acknowledged. So we get in the ontology the representational unit O number 1, which refers to the universal out area reality, which is U1. On slide 41, um, the existence of John Doe's B9 colonic polyp is discovered. However, without being recognized as such, if you look at the dashed arrow, which points from UI3 to O0, so then at that time when the existence of that thing, P3, is discovered, it is believed to be an instance of something that does not exist. Okay? So, at the one hand, there is some, some advance, because the existence of something that exists is acknowledged, but it is totally wrongly uh, classified. Slide 42. There is another advance in science, uh, namely, the concept O0 is rightfully abundant. Okay? So, there is no belief anymore in the existence of such things. But, of course, uh, that necessitates to reconsider of what particular tree must be believed to uh, be an instance of. And as you can see on this slide, uh, <coughs> it is at the end of that period that they then say, okay, UI3 is an instance of O1. On slide 43, we go further. It is rightfully believed that P3 is an instance of UI. In this case, it raises, amongst other things, the question to what point in history this belief can be extended. Because as soon as we figure out that something is the case now and we were wrong in the past, now we might also ask the questions for how long are we already wrong. Slide 44. Now, in this case, there is a change in reality. P3 changes from a B9 into a malignant tumor. But this is done at a time that science did not discover malignancy yet. Okay, it's a purely hypothetical example, of course, but why do I say that? Because you see that the uh, representational unit O2, which is later on going to refer to universal 2, is not yet part of the ontology at that time. So malignancy is still an unknown notion uh, at that time, although particular P3 is an instance of it. And particular P3, as you can see at the belief level, is still believed to be an instance of a B9 uh, polyp. These things also happen quite often in reality. A physician, uh, sorry, a patient has some problem uh, in his stomach. He, at a certain time, he goes to see a physician. They make the diagnosis, oh yes, you've got a polyp there. Uh, let's go back in a year from now on to see whether there are any uh, problems, further problems. Well, it might be that six months after the visit, the polyp starts, becomes malignant, 
And then you have a period of six months' time before the patient goes back to the physician where there is still the belief that the polyp is benign, while in reality it's already malignant. Slide 45, uh, we have a new advance in science, namely uh, malignancy is discovered. But at this time, it, that it applies to John Doe's polyp has not yet been noticed. On slide 46, uh, we see that at this time John Doe's polyp becomes recognized as an instance of a malignant tumor. And at this, uh, this is the first um, uh, instance of time that you can see where the, our representation of reality is completely in sync with what is actually the case. So for the entire time frame in this slide, this is the only place where we have an exact representation of reality in terms of the ontology. When we go further, uh, we see that uh, there is the belief that John Doe's polyp was disappeared. Uh, treatment was given, some radiation therapy was given, uh, endoscopies and so were done, and nothing else is there to see, so there is the belief that the polyp vanished, but in reality, it is still there. It might be microscopically small, so it might have become undetectable, but it is still there. And then on slide 48, uh, I depicted a situation where John Doe is really lucky. Uh, lucky in the sense that his tumor indeed disappeared. And his physicians who believed that it was already gone are also lucky because they escaped a lawsuit. And then finally, uh, this is put there primarily as a joke, but not entirely. For utilitarian reasons, the pragmatic engineers remove malignant tumors from their ontology. So, because if it is not believed to exist, you can't get lawsuits for failures in recognizing instances. Now, why do I put that there? Because when we look on the way that several ontologies are built, these kinds of utilitarian reasons often uh, happen and uh, lead to decisions where ontology developers ignore to represent certain things for reasons, simple reasons that it better suits their purposes, while in fact uh, it should not be done like that. Now, there are different other possibilities. So what I did now on this slide, I'm on slide 50, I changed uh, a little bit the, uh, the, the belief level and so that I can show some other examples. So in this case, you have uh, a particular which is believed to exist longer than it does in reality. Typical example being uh, Elvis Presley is not dead. There are people who believe that. And, but the more practical example are the uh, very many electronic healthcare record systems that state that the patient is taking some drugs while in reality he already stops. Because what's the case there? A patient goes to a physician for some complaints. The physician says, okay, uh, I'll uh, prescribe this, this kind of drugs and you have to take them for three weeks. So he notes this in electronic records that the patient started to take the drugs on a specific date. But when the patient does not come back after those three weeks, uh, no changes are anymore made in the electronic health records. And if you look, let's say, after six weeks to the electronic health records, then you can still assume that the patient is taking these drugs, while in reality he doesn't. And when I gave this overview, uh, slide 51 I'm now, 
then I even ignored uh, the relationships that there exist amongst universals in reality themselves and the beliefs uh, about the relationships between universals. So you see that already with this simple example that I gave, uh, how many changes uh, can happen, both in reality, both in, the, in our beliefs and is also in how we build uh, ontologies, and that there must be some way to uh, take all these changes into account. Otherwise, it will be very difficult to assess whether the ontologies we built are any good. So, slide 52. I told this story because it shows the complex interrelationships between what is the case, what we know about what is the case, what parts about what we know that is the case we wish to refer to in ontologies and repositories. And it shows also the need to update ontologies and repositories in line with various sorts of changes. So if we summarize uh, that little story, then uh, throughout the history, there are four kinds of things that can be done uh, in, uh, when we take our beliefs in reality and reality itself into account. So the first one, slide 53, are mistakes. So there were four places during that history where mistakes uh, were committed. The first one is the belief in something that does not exist. The second one is the belief that something that is exist is an instance of something that does not exist and so forth. I don't need to repeat the other ones. Uh, but also discoveries are made. Discoveries at the level of universals, discoveries at the level of particulars, and discoveries of what type specific particulars are instances. Third category is you can be lucky. So uh, in this case, there is only one example when something that you believed to have ceased to exist really cease to exist at a later time. So in this case, we are lucky. But you can also have bad luck, and unfortunately, as you can see, there are many more situations where you have bad luck than where are, you are really lucky. And I think that uh, one of the uh, things on which we should base uh, our ontology building is not on counting on being lucky. So a crucial question, slide 57, is whether or not uh, we have some means to assess how good we are doing in our understanding of reality. Now, some might argue we can't, because every representational unit will always rest on a belief. But my belief is, yes, we can do so. Uh, at least if we keep track of the reasons in function of the three levels of reality that I discussed earlier, for which one's beliefs have changed. And that brings me then to uh, part three of my presentation, which is tracking changes in representation, and which is based on two papers that I published with uh, Barry Smith. The one is uh, on a realism-based metric for quality assurance in ontology matching, and the other one is on ontology evolution. And both papers are available from uh, our website. So just to uh, remember the three different levels of reality, there is the reality uh, on the side of, in, the, in biomedicine, the side of the patient. There are the cognitive representations of this reality, which are embodied in observations and interpretations on the part of clinicians and others. And then there are the publicly accessible concretizations set in representational artifacts of various sources, of which ontologies and terminologies are examples. 
Now let's look at uh, a simple example. So at the level of, uh, let's take that notion of a person's phenotypic gender. So in reality, you have the universals male and female. So we might have in our cognitive representation these notions of male and female. In the electronic health records, if you go look to electronic health records, then you see quite often that uh, a patient gender is either uh, annotated as being male and female, but quite often also as unknown. So the question is, of course, what does this on unknown mean? Slide 60. What it is not supposed to mean is that there are other types of phenotypic genders than male or female. So that unknown does not reflect anything in reality itself, and I mean here first-order reality, but reflects something what we know about a particular person. So the unknown in this case uh, is an epistemological issue, it is not an ontological uh, thing. On slide 61, uh, I come back to uh, what I call the specification bias in ontology evolution. Uh, when you look at the literature on ontology uh, evolution, then you see that most of the research thus far has been uh, paid attention to differences of whether a subtree in an ontology has been added or deleted, or whether a subtree uh, has been moved to a different location, and so forth. So these kind of things, they take primarily the structure uh, of ontologies into account, and how that structure changed over time in uh, successive uh, versions. Um, on slide 62, you see that that uh, bias is still present in, in, in recent literature, because here I'm pointing to a PhD thesis which has been defended in uh, October last year, and where the entire thesis was only in uh, how to cope with changes, but of structural changes, and there was no mentioning of uh, what happened in reality uh, with respect to uh, the change in the ontology. So people who are doing that, they don't care about the reasons for the changes, and whether those changes are in the underlying reality, are those changes in our scientific understanding. Uh, it might be a change uh, because of a reassessment of what is relevant for inclusion in an ontology, or it might simply be the correction of a mistake. You issue a new version of an ontology and you saw that something was wrong, you simply correct it. Um, now, our claim is that if you want to have a good versioning methodology of ontologies, then you should give the reasons why a change is made. Because without those reasons explicitly being given, you never know, you never know why uh, that change or that update of the ontology has been done. So to uh, prove my point here, uh, let's have a look again at an electronic healthcare record system of John Smith. And at time T1, his phenotypic gender is registered as being male. And at time 2, it is being registered as female. So the question is, I'll give you 10 seconds to think about it, what must have happened? Slide 66. Ask the question, indeed, what are the possibilities? Slide 67 says, okay, there might have been a change in reality. So slide 68 shows the possibility that the patient might have gone transgender surgery. 
but on slide 69 it is shown that it might also have been a change in legal self-identification. So certain states in the United States here allow any person uh, to go to the authorities and say, I want to self-identify as male. And he may change his mind and a year later go again to the authorities and say, from now on, I want to self-identify as female. Okay, so here we have two examples of a change in reality. Slide 70, there might have been a change in understanding. So it might have been that Sean Smith was female from the very beginning, but that situation was interpreted wrongly. So that happens once in a while with uh, babies who are born with some hormonal disorder and where the external sex organs uh, at that time do not allow you to see whether the baby is male or female. And that requires some investigations uh, afterwards. So in this case, <coughs> if we take John Smith's example again, so at birth it was assumed to be male, but final uh, investigations made then clear that, in fact, he was female. So there was no change in reality, but there was only a change in understanding. And then slide 71, the last possibility is that it was simply correction of a data entry mistake. So uh, John was male all the time, but it was wrongly transcribed. Sorry, it was female all the time, but it was in the beginning wrongly uh, transcribed. Again, if you only see these changes from male into female at T2, and you don't know what the reason was for those changes, you have only to guess uh, what, has what has happened in reality. So, uh, now we come to the most complex part of this presentation, that is that building of that uh, calculus. So, when you take up all the possibilities, uh, what may happen in reality, what may happen in our understanding, and what may happen in the encoding, then you can get this table, which is shown here on slide 72. And in fact, there are, uh, if I count well, 3 plus 8 is uh, 11, plus 4 is 15 different situations, uh, which I labeled uh, P plus and a number, A plus and a number, P minus and some numbers, and A minus and some numbers. So that's shown in the left column. Under the two columns which are marked reality, you have uh, two other columns. One OE means objective existence, and the other one means objective relevance. So if we have, if we look at P plus one to the second and the third column, now we see that in that situation there is something which objectively exists and which objectively is relevant for the purposes of which an ontology about that portion of reality is being built. In the fourth and the fifth column, under understanding, we have BE, which stands for belief in existence, and BRV, which stands for belief uh, in relevance. If we take, for instance, the situation A plus 1, then we see that we have there a situation which, in reality, uh, something, uh, well, it's strange to say something does not exist, but there is nothing there, okay? And also, our understanding is there is nothing there. So we can use language to say unicorns do not exist. So that statement would be a situation of uh, A plus 1. And then we have the uh, encoding, uh, where there are also two columns. The column labeled int means intended encoding, and the yes and the no stands therefore does the uh, representation encode what it is supposed to encode. 
If that is the case, then there is yes. If that is not the case, that, then there is no. Now, if it is the case that the representation points to something which is not the intended referent, then there are two possibilities. Uh, one is that it does not refer at all, or it might refer to the wrong thing. The difference is given there with the minus sign before the R or the minus sign uh, after the R. The column marked E uh, displays the number of mistakes that are made with respect to the actual situation. So to clarify my point here, take uh, P minus 5, which is almost in the middle of the screen of slide 72. So we have there a situation where something exists in reality and it is objectively relevant. In the ontology author's uh, understanding or belief, it is acknowledged to exist and it is acknowledged to uh, be relevant. But while the ontology was being, being built, they made an encoding mistake such that the uh, representational unit does not have the intended representation. And they made the mistake in such a way, R minus, that uh, it does not, that it refers to the wrong thing. So in that case, there are two mistakes being made. If we take another example, the P minus 2. So there we have a situation where in reality something does not exist. And when something in reality does not exist, then of course uh, there is the notion of the objective relevance uh, does not exist, does not apply. So that's why there is a dash. However, in the understanding, in the belief of the ontology author, there is the belief that that thing exists and that it is relevant. Now, of course, uh, when you believe in the existence of something that does not exist, then your encoding does not have the intended representation, right? So you make an additional mistake, and in this case the mistake is that it doesn't refer to anything. So if you compare the P minus 1 with the P plus 1, the P plus 1 being the ideal situation, then four mistakes have been made. There is one additional column, uh, which is the, the G column, uh, and the G column is there to um, show that if you do not uh, take reality into account when you are building an ontology, then you end up in having only five different classes as compared to the that you can uh, identify when you do take reality uh, into account. So on slide 73, uh, what is important are the different uh, uh, value pairs. Uh, in this case here, the comparison of objective existence with the belief in existence. Uh, when we have a yes-yes, so then there is the correct assertion of the existence of a portion of reality. When we have the combination yes-no, then there is a lack of awareness of a portion of, re of reality, and then you have what I called an assertion error. In an N case, there is the correct assertion that some putative portion of reality does not exist. And the, the no-yes case uh, means that there is a false belief that some putative portion of reality does exist. Uh, so on slide 74, you see again the, uh, the differences in uh, uh, intended representation. So it might be correct, it might refer to nothing, or it might refer to a non-intended thing. 
And then on slide 75, you have the table uh, stretched out completely, but this is there to show you on slide 76. So uh, uh, what are the good situations and what are the erroneous situations? So what is at this level uh, correct is put in green, what is wrong is put in red. So if you only look at the objective existence and uh, believe in the existence, we have the situation as shown on slide 76. If we uh, go to slide 77 and we add possible differences for the objective relevance and belief in relevance, we get that situation. If we add the encoding, you get that uh, um, situation, slide 78. And then finally, slide 79, you see that out of the 15 uh, possible situations, there are only three uh, who are correct and 12 who represent mistakes. Uh, on slide 80, you see the two different kind of categories of uh, correct situations, namely P plus 1, which stands for the valid presence of a representational unit in an ontology, and A plus 1 and A plus 2 stand for the valid absence of an, uh, a representational unit in an ontology. There are, in this case, two cases. So uh, if something does not exist, there should not be a representational unit in the ontology. Second case, A plus 2, something does exist, but it is not relevant. So in that case, it should also not be represented in the ontology. On slide 81, uh, we have uh, shown the two groups uh, which correspond to mistakes. So you have, on the one hand, unjustified presence in the ontology. So there is something in the ontology that is not supposed to be there. And there is also unjustified absence, namely representational units that should be there but are not. And I'm not going at this stage into the details of these uh, two groups. Uh, just, again, sometimes you can get lucky. So if you are at the situations A minus 3 and A minus 4, then uh, you did not put, the ontology authors did not put something into an ontology, but they did it for the wrong reasons. But the net result is, of course, that it, it doesn't matter. So you can consider that also as, I consider that as, as, uh, as being lucky. Now, next step on slide 83, whereas the uh, previous slides depicted the situations at any specific instance of time, now you can start by playing with the time and you can start taking into account uh, changes. So on slide 83, you see on the left-hand side uh, of each uh, table, in fact, there are, the table is cut in two parts and you should really see them uh, underneath each other instead of uh, next to each other. So when you have at time T uh, situation, P plus 1, A plus 1, A plus 2, and so forth, uh, at time T plus 1, things might happen. So what might happen is that there is a belief in the object, uh, sorry, um, uh, a change in the objective existence. So something may start to exist or may cease to exist. There can be a change in uh, objective relevance. So something that was relevant at a certain time point might become irrelevant afterwards or the other way around. And the same thing for the uh, uh, subjective existence or the belief in the existence and the belief in the relevance and the intended encoding. Now, if you look at all those different situations, you see that there is not an, uh, uh, there is not all changes cannot, no, sorry, none of the, not all 15 situations can follow any 
of the situations itself. So for a P plus 1 can only evolve into a P minus 1 or a P minus 6, an A minus 2, an A minus 1, or a P minus 4. Uh, it is very difficult to uh, assess that from this slide uh, only, but you have to combine it with the previous one. So I just gave you uh, an example on the next slide on how that works. I'm now at slide uh, 84. So on the left-hand side of that slide, you have the original table that shows the different situations uh, at a specific uh, instance of time. And on the right-hand side of the screen, you see part of the table that was on slide 83, and which so shows you uh, evolution over time. Now, on slide 85, uh, I took the situation where uh, a situation of P plus 1 changes into a P minus 1. So how does that happen? Well, because there was a change in reality. So something that existed at time T does not exist anymore at time uh, t plus 1. Now, the change is there in reality, but you, uh, uh, nothing is changed in the ontology that represents reality. Okay? So when we had a time t, a correct representation uh, of that part of the ontology that refers to that particular portion of reality, at time t plus 1, uh, because nothing is done to the ontology, there is a mistake in the ontology because reality changed. So when we compare the level of the, the line P minus 1 with P plus 1, which shows you, it, I circled it, that something ceased to exist, then automatically, of course, uh, if we don't change the uh, ontology, there is a representational unit that does not refer. And this leads, in this case here, to three uh, mistakes. Slide 86, uh, another example, that is where, uh, in reality, the objective relevance changes. So again, the same situation. Uh, we don't do anything uh, at the level of the ontology. Okay? At this case, we migrate from a situation P plus 1 at time T, to a situation by P minus 6 at time T plus 1. And another example is given at uh, slide 87, where something that did not exist uh, in reality uh, starts to exist at a certain time, but it is not acknowledged in the ontology. So we migrate from an A plus 1, which is a justified absence, into an ontology, to an unjustified absence. Now, slide 88 uh, shows that updating is an active process. So, uh, I believe that authors, when they release an ontology, they assume in good faith that all included representational units are of the P plus 1 type. And all they are aware of, but did not include in the ontology, are those of either A plus 1, or A plus 2. Now, as soon as an ontology author becomes aware of a mistake, they make a change under the assumption that their changes are also towards those ideal cases, namely towards P plus 1, towards A plus 1, or towards A plus 2. Now, this means that at the time that they know 
of no is that at that time so when they discover a mistake they know of what type the previous entry must have been of under the belief what the current one is and taking into account the reason for that change and it is that principle here that I use as the basis uh, for the calculus for update quality which is the last part of my presentation so this calculus is designed uh, not to demonstrate how good an individual version of an ontology is. Now, in fact, I have to say, that would, of course, be a sensible goal, but this type of calculus does not meet that requirement. So it is not possible with what I'm going to propose here to demonstrate how good an individual version of an ontology is. But it is nevertheless a measure to uh, measure how much it has improved, hopefully, as, as compared to its predecessors. And the principle so here on slide 91, um, we can try to uh, understand what that backward belief revision over time, in fact, means. I showed here an example where, at the time, a portion of reality exists but is not relevant. Okay? Uh, nevertheless, it was considered by the authors of the ontology uh, to be relevant. So in reality, that's the thing that we have depicted there... Uh, on the top side of top hand side of slide 91, uh, the actual situation is a p minus seven, but the authors of the ontology believe it to be a p plus one. Okay, so at time t, the authors of the ontology correctly perceive the existence of some universal, but they consider it relevant while it isn't, and then they make an encoding order in such a way that the representational unit does not refer. At this time, there are two mistakes committed. So, uh, this minus two error, you can find that, that it comes from the big table that I showed in the, one of the slides in the uh, 80s. But of course, uh, the fact that there are two mistakes made at that time are still unknown to the others. Now, on slide 92, uh, you see that at time t plus one, they correct the encoding mistake. So, they became of, aware of the fact that they made an encoding mistake. Uh, and that forces them to believe that at time t, the unit reality configuration was of a type p minus 4 rather than p plus 1. If we look at what it means to be a p minus 4, then you see that there is minus 1 uh, error committed. So in this case, uh, by using that backward belief revision, uh, they can assess the ontology as having uh, been improved by a count of one. On slide 94, we go another, another step further, namely that at t plus 2, the authors believe that the positive portion of reality, in fact, does not exist. Okay? But beware, in reality still, nothing has changed. We are only talking at this time of uh, beliefs in, uh, in the reality. So there on slide 95, you then see that the situation which they believe to be a p plus 1 is in fact a p minus 1, and that they have to change also their belief of what to think at time t and at time t plus 1. And if you look on the right uh, bottom side of slide 95, then you see by doing that new change to the ontology, uh, the, uh, an error factor of 5 has been added, and at that time they must believe that the mistake they made 
at time t plus 1 was of minus 3 and so forth. So what in fact you get uh, at this point is that by each time when you make a change and you uh, annotate the reason for that change, it gives you the possibility to uh, revise your belief at earlier times and to revise it in such a way that you say, okay, if I believe what is the case now, then I must believe that it has been such at that time and that it has been such at an earlier time and so forth. And what then makes the, um, the uh, nice thing about this calculus is that uh, that factor of belief is in fact factored out. It is like in an equation where there is an unknown which remains on both hand sides of the equation, and you've put the equation in such a way that you can get rid of that, uh, of that unknown. That is more or less the case what I'm trying to show here. Now, important question, uh, slide 96 is, can this be implemented? Now, I believe, of course, it can be implemented. Uh, the manual burden, in any case, is low. Okay, so the only thing that you need to do is, uh, is to uh, build into ontology authoring systems or in uh, database interfaces when you are talking about level of databases, for instance, electronic healthcare record systems, you must have uh, a small uh, interface that allows you to document the reasons for the change. And that can be done just by clicking one ra radio button. You can say, okay, it's changing reality, changing belief, uh, which of the five possibilities that I gave uh, earlier. But then the change of the belief revisions is automatically computable from the table shown earlier. So just indicating what the new belief is allows you to do the computation for uh, everything else. Future directions of my research, and that's, uh, I'm now on slide 97, and I guess this is the last one, uh, is to use this approach for uh, sampling large ontologies. I'm already discussing with uh, the people from the SNOMED uh, who are really interested to apply this uh, methodology to see what the evolution of uh, SNOMED uh, CT is. But, of course, SNOMED CT is an extremely large ontology. Currently, there are over 320,000 uh, entities. It is a huge task to do that back in time. Uh, but we think that by sampling these large ontologies that way, that at least some approximation of improvement can be got. Another thing is, to, uh, is the integration of confidence levels. So currently, I only worked with uh, yes and no dichotomy for beliefs, and it might also be possible to uh, refine that more precisely. Another uh, improvement might be a more elaborate way of counting the orders. So the only thing that I did now was just counting how many errors have been committed in one when you believe a certain situation with what is the case uh, in reality. And there might be certain errors might be less relevant than other uh, types of errors. So and we might possibly take that into account as well. And then another thing is... Uh, uh, use the thing as a tool for uh, educational purposes. It might be that for very large ontologies it is too cumbersome to do, but nevertheless for educational purposes it, it's interesting. It is, uh, I think it will improve the situation where uh, current ways of ontology building where you are look only at the model itself and consistent reasoning inside a model, uh, well with this kind of an approach there is at least that correspondence with the model and reality itself. And it can also be used uh, as a tool to compare the beliefs of various stakeholders, uh, because some things might be considered relevant from one point of view and irrelevant from another uh, point of view, and I think with this uh, approach we can accommodate for that too. So this is the end of my presentations, and I'm very glad to take questions.
Thank you, Werner. And uh, this is Steve Ray. Um, I think, Peter, you probably have uh, access to anyone who's been raising their hand during this process. Is that correct? Yes, but so I, I actually have a couple of questions myself. I do want to be on cue. Why don't you go ahead while we're waiting? We also have uh, now Mustafa Jara. So uh, thank you very much, Professor uh, Houston. Uh, uh, since the, 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 at the kickoff of this uh, mini-series, we had like Chris Welty presenting onto Clean. Do you see this as an extension uh, to the, their methodology, or uh, could, since I mean, this is heavy, and I definitely need to sort of restudy your slides again? Uh, can, can you tell? I mean, is there, is there any? Uh, place where your your methodology here and the way they, they are looking at things, uh, are there any conflicts? Oh, no, absolutely not. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm very much in favor of uh, the ontoclean methodology itself because what it does is it forces people to have a clear look uh, on reality and then it based on that view, it restricts in what way you should build your representational unit. So it does something of the structure of your ontology, and it does a good thing. Um, what it doesn't do is to take change into account. So the approach that I'm advocating here is something that comes after. So uh, it comes uh, if when you build your first version of an ontology, there is no change. So for the first version in the ontology, you shouldn't do nothing. Uh, everything that is in the ontology, in fact, should is supposed to be of P plus 1. So you say, I believe it exists, and I believe uh, that it is relevant, and that's why it is there. My theory comes only into play as soon as updates to an ontology are made. Okay? Now, it is at that stage that uh, ontoclean only plays a partial role. Okay? So when uh, the ontology when the ontology author says, okay, I want to add a new representational unit, uh, and it has to give that representational unit a place in the hierarchy of the existing ontology. So to do that, he would use ontoclean. But he has to express then, according to my theory, also why in this version of the ontology uh, that representational unit is there while it was absent in the previous version. You see the difference? My next question is, I mean, I, I remember on your last slide, I mean, you did point to sort of the dichotomy I mean, of, of your confidence. But uh, do you think, I mean, probability is part of reality or, I mean, uh, or is that not in your vocabulary? No, 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 no. It is, it is a part of uh, reality, but it has then be used in, in, the, in the right way. I mean, uh, it, is, it is real that, uh, let us say, persons uh, of a certain age vary each individually in length from, let us say, a lowest number to a maximum number, okay? So when you can do your counting in such a way that you are able to say, okay, 55% of the people of age 48 are of that height. And this is then something that you can translate into a probability. So if, if you say Mr. X is a, is a person of age 48, so what is the probability that his length is 155, right? 
So that, those kind of things exist. What I do not uh, would uh, put into an ontology is the possible existence of a thing, right? So there are no uh, possibilia in the type of ontologies that I'm interested in. In realist ontologies, there are no possibilia. Okay? Um, you have to deal with those things at an epistemological level, not at an ontological level. Hello? Yes. You, can you, can you? Oh, hi, Werner. Thank you for the presentation. Uh, actually, my question is related to your last uh, sentences. Uh, can we apply this methodology for administrative ontologies? I mean, administrative here, not realism ontologies. Uh, because, for example, in reality, let's say, for example, a person has a name, property name here, it doesn't exist in reality, but we create this and it's, uh, uh, it's a belief or it's just even a convention. So can we apply this approach in other kinds of ontologies? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, as soon as a name, as soon as a name has been given to a person, the name exists. So, I mean, that is as real as that uh, I'm currently touching my nose. I don't understand why you say that that's not real. No, no. If I say a person has a name, the fact that a person has a name, it doesn't exist in reality because uh, uh, we create this fact. We are we humans who just by convention give a person a name. So if I don't have a name, I exist and I function the same. So in reality, oh, yeah. it doesn't exist. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, persons can exist without a name. But yeah. when a name has been given, the name for that person exists. Right? And, and it is as real as the person itself. It doesn't matter how it has been created. So when we, I talk about realist ontologies, then I'm not talking about things that, uh, let us say, come into existence purely by the force of nature. I mean, uh, that would be very, very uh, restricting. Uh, oh. We deal with artifacts as well. Furniture would not be there if it was not created. I'm not saying that furniture does not exist, right? Oh, no, no. Okay. but what is the case is that artifacts, they, uh, uh, let's say, they enjoy certain other properties than that, what has been called, uh, what was the term, natural kinds, uh, enjoy. But both uh, are at the level of reality, absolutely. Uh, okay, so actually then my, my misunderstanding was realism ontologies are not only medical ontologies that are uh, like scientific discoveries, but it's also... Mm-hmm. Other kind of things. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Uh, but also, if, you, if there is room for another uh, little question, uh, uh, so because there are a lot of beliefs, you know, uh, uh, because we deal with with with, uh, with domains like uh, the HR domain, when the to model competencies or skills, and mm-hmm. there is it is really very subjective. Uh, I think in reality, well, I don't know in reality, but at least the beliefs. It's too subjective domain to model a competency and to say this competency implies uh, another competency. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so in such very subjective domains, uh, 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 or the subjectivity here, of course, about beliefs, or very too much diversity, diversity of beliefs, do you think we can still also uh, evaluate certain 
ontologies against reality? Uh, absolutely, but I, I don't think that uh, what you are referring to is a matter is a matter of belief. I think it's a matter of uh, of demarcation. Um, and with demarcation, I mean that you you want to set a certain boundary. So you want to say, uh, in order to be able to do such and such a job, a person must have these and these skills. And the question is, uh, what are the criteria that we will assign? To uh, mm-hmm. being able to do specific jobs. Well, that's not that's not. Well, there might be some some level of belief, but usually it is not a matter of belief. Usually it is a matter of setting boundaries, and boundaries in itself in realist ontologies are are a very interesting uh, topic, uh, because there are different kinds of boundaries. Um, okay, I'm an MD, so I will give you again a medical example that can give much easier examples from that domain than from competencies. Uh, but take uh, take a blood pressure, right? So uh, a person's blood pressure is per continuum, right? So it can be 12 over 9, it can be 12.5 over 9.5, and, and so forth. So there are different values. And in fact, you cannot say that there is a concrete boundary uh, between a high blood pressure and a, and a low blood pressure in the sense as there is a concrete boundary between my hand and the pen that I hold in my hand, right? Mm-hmm. So the boundary between the pen and my hand is a physical boundary, but when we talk about a low blood pressure or a high pro- blood pressure, there is not that concrete boundary. Now, what happens? People put a boundary there. So, and based upon some agreement or whatever, they say, okay, we will consider a blood pressure of 15 over 9.5 to be the boundary between what is normal and what is not normal, Okay. Now, that does not, when they set the boundary there, that does not mean that that uh, boundary is there completely, um, what's the English word? Um, um, uh, uh, the word escapes me, but it is, it is not put there by, by coincidence. It is not there, okay, we put it 15 over 9, but it could have been 13 over 8 or whatever. It is because there is empirical evidence that people with a blood pressure over 15, over 9, do more problems than people with a blood pressure below 15 over 9, okay? Mm-hmm. So what we get there is uh, what we call a fiat boundary. So the boundary itself does not exist uh, in reality, but we create that kind of a boundary because it helps us in understanding certain things that go on in reality. And I think with skills, that is exactly uh, the same thing. Mm-hmm. The word that I was looking for was arbitrary. So we do not put in an arbitrary manner so that uh, boundary at 15 over 9. It's there for good reason. Well, do we have any more questions from anyone? I hear a lot of silence, but... um, and I, I actually don't have any questions either, Werner, but uh, last chance for anyone to pitch in. May I ask a question? <laughs> I mean. <laughs> well, the question is, is uh, whether, uh, at the others, whether within the audience there are people who are building ontologies and who are interesting to, uh, interested to apply this methodology to their uh, ontology building. So if that indeed would be the case, I would be most happy to, uh, to help them to... Uh, study some things, write a joint paper, uh, integrate them in uh, 
one of the proposals that I have to write and so forth. Very interesting. Yeah. I know it's, I'm, I'm still trying to get my mind around uh, how you implement the actual uh, calculus you're talking about. So that's, yeah. that's going to take a little bit of thought on my part before I can even quite come to grips with what that might mean. But uh, as I, I think on behalf of the community, that's a great offer for anyone who wants to jump on that. Uh, as I think that's what Ontolog Forum is all about, especially. So. Um, on, on, on that, I actually have two comments. One is, I mean, there are people in the community who are building repositories, and actually a few of our uh, members uh, belong to, let's say, the Oasis uh, registry and repository group, and I don't know if any of them are online today, but, but this definitely would be something that they could look into. Uh, the other comment is I noticed, I mean, you did cite the work uh, of Natasha Noy, and I, I guess she has been working on prompt and, and, and related, like, change management uh, tools. Are you sort of working with or prepared to work with, with them uh, to implement this into their tools? Well, I think they would benefit in uh, in doing for it because, uh, as you as you noticed, it, it, it's the fact that uh, the work of Natasha Noy does not reason for change into account. I I, I believe that's an omission. So she's only working at the at the structural level and not at the reasons of the change. And I think they they complement each other. I, I, the stupid example is that uh, if uh, if you only take into account structural changes, uh, then it would be like you suddenly see you, you you step out of your bedroom on a on a Monday morning and you see that all the cars are hanging in the trees. Okay. Now the traditional uh, way of dealing with that kind of change in an ontology is simply stating, well, the cars used to be on the ground and now they are in the trees. That's all that the traditional change management offers you. Well, I would be very interested to know, well, why are now the trees, the, 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 the cars in the trees? So what's exactly that brought about the change? Okay? So that's the additional thing that I, with this theory, try to offer. Good point. I actually, this is Steve Ray, but I, I do think that uh, you introduce a much richer concept of version control in general, and it's not really just for ontology management, but I think the notion of formalizing a different categories of what changed um, is, is a very rich idea, which reminds me of the fact that I know more and more people these days are talking about, you know, provenance of data. And, uh, you know, there's lots of data out there, but you've got to know how you can trust it, where it came from, what is its history, etc., etc., and the kind of richness of version management that you're talking about obviously pertains directly to that kind of thing, uh, quite aside from the fact that it, you're talking about the, you know, the sort of the dual tracking of reality and, and model of reality in your notions. So I think yes, that even absolutely. the concept you introduced can be extended and broadened quite a bit. Yeah, thank you. Can, can I make one more comment, Peter, Peter, here again? I mean, the fact that you've sort of uh, put forth 
a taxonomy in a, a, a matrix I mean, is, is good. Uh, would it be possible to reduce it to a set of terminologies that everyone can, can get a grip on? I, I think so, yeah. I mean, the, um, what I should do is to, um, to write out uh, more in detail the different kind of scenarios. So uh, and, and and even implement the uh, it's, it's something that can be done by a student. I mean, implement the calculus itself is not difficult because it's it's a uh, it's a typical example of a, of a of a, a tree traversal. So you have to see these uh, that one table. If you go uh, over time, you have to see those tables in succession. And what you have to do is inf- is, is in fact calculate a path through those different uh, things. And they are they are fixed. So if you know if you know the reasons for the change, then the calculus gives you automatically uh, what kind of a transition uh, must have happened. Yeah, actually, Werner, this is Steve Ray again. I do have a question about what that caused me to think about, which was way back on slide 75 when you introduced or have that table, you know, with the P, the A, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, is that intended to be a complete set of all possible or meaningful combinations? Yes, at this time, yes. So it takes into account uh, uh, reality, uh, what exists and what not exists, what does the, the second column, okay, so what is relevant for the purposes uh, of the application for which ontology is built, objectively, okay, then our belief therein, that's the uh, fourth and the fifth column, and then the encoding. So there might be other criteria, uh, which are also relevant. I, I've been thinking about it. I, I don't see any other one at, uh, at this time within that framework of, of realist ontology, at least. Um, what can be done is, as I said, is to improve the, uh, the, the different values that can go into each cell. So there I can see some room for improvement. Uh, but other criteria, I mean, I'm quite open to, uh, to have other ideas in that. But at this stage, yes, I mean, it's... Uh, I've been looking at it, and I, I can't see any other situations than the, than the 15 that are there. I see. Because I, I would imagine, uh, I mean, you picked sort of existence and relevance. Maybe mm-hmm. there are other aspects uh, beyond those two that might be important. I don't know. but uh, so, Such as what? Well, I don't know yet. Hey, I just, I'm just yeah. thinking about this right now. Uh, yeah, 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 but I understand. Well, I, I did, and it is difficult. Now, you can come up, of course, you can, you can say uh, uh, whether it is easy implementable, yes or no, right? So there are certain considerations that, uh, for instance, in the DL community are, are taken. For instance, the DL community says, is it computable, right, in, in, in such and such a time? Well, right. and, under our assumption, we say, well, that's irrelevant. Our first task is to be... In, to be accurate in description. And then sure. only as a, as a second step, okay, now we can start to worry uh, about computability. Hmm. Uh, uh, very interesting. Again, this is uh, Mustafa Zara. So actually in the slide also 75, I see, because you see three levels, reality, uh, understanding, and encoding. I, actually, I, yeah, I have a comment about encoding because... Mm-hmm. Encoding could be actually divided into also different levels. For example, uh, let's take uh, UML, just to make my example easy to understand. Again, if a person has a name, and the name here is property, I maybe change my ontology and put the name as a class, 
uh, that have first name and last name. So this is an encoding, I guess, uh, an encoding problem, an encoding change. But th there are different kind of encoding changes. So there are maybe epistemological cha uh, changes that belong to the structuring of the knowledge, and uh, probably there are other kinds of uh, knowledge. So did you think maybe to divide uh, uh, at least the encoding uh, colon into different uh, levels? Yes, I think that's a possibility because um, so currently I only say it represents correctly or it does not, and if it does not correct, uh, if it does not refer correctly, then it either does not refer or it does to refer to a wrong thing. Uh, um, what might be an addition might see okay. We know that the representation is not perfect, but it might be better than the previous one. So I think some kind of a gradation might might indeed be added there. Actually, Although I can't ima imagine immediately how it would work, but I have a feeling that it is possible, yes. Well, actually, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, not uh, that this version of the ontology is better than the other version, uh, but maybe this version of the ontology, the, perform the performance in application A of this ontology is very good, but for application B it's not. While another version, a previous version, it is very good for application D. So um, most of the time, in my experience with ontologies, most of the time, this is not a problem of reality. This is not a problem of understanding. It's a problem of how you encode it, how you encode the the knowledge, and uh, uh, in terms of how many uh, the number of axioms, how you structure the knowledge. I mean the epistemological structure of the ontology. And, and there, most of the uh, changes, in my opinion, most of the changes are according to encoding, because some encoding is faster to implement for application scenario than another. Oh, exactly. But that is, that's exactly what I said earlier to, to, uh, to Steve. That's, uh, that has then to do with computability. So if you say that one ontology, that an ontology works better for a certain application than for another application, there might be two reasons. So one reason might be that there are things which are in the ontology which are not relevant for the second. Uh, yes. uh, and, but the relevance is taken into account, right? So uh, that's there. Uh, the other thing has indeed to do with the way that you uh, represent the stuff, but that's not something that I worry about here, okay? So what I worry about here is whether or not what you represent, does it, yes or no, correctly refers to something that exists in reality. Mm -hmm. Now, for instance, if in your ontology you say uh, uh, Mustafa Jarar refers to me, then that would only be valid if there is no other person with the name Mustafa Jarar in the world, right? Yeah. So that ends up as being a situation where I say, okay, it might be at time T that indeed Mustafa Jarar correctly refers to you, but suppose that tomorrow uh, somewhere another ch child is born and the, the name Mustafa Jarar is given, then there is no uh, correct representation anymore. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not dealing at all with syntactic issues, okay? So in what way, uh, you, using what language or whatever you represent your uh, representational units, I don't take that into account at all. Yeah, but that's for computer scientists. That's for you. <laughs> <laughs> we should work together. <laughs>
Okay. Well, if there are no other questions, then I suggest we uh, not uh, go on any longer than necessary. I would like to thank you, Werner, for a really stimulating talk, and, um, and, and thank you again for the amount of time you put into preparing and delivering it. It was my pleasure. Bye.